Well, as we begin this morning, let's all remember our main idea from last week, which was found in verse 26 of chapter 3. And that's where the Bible said, quote, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And last week we talked about that a lot to make sure we understood that. Because if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a child of God. And this means that no matter what you're going through, right, no matter what you may personally feel right now, what you felt this past week, no, no matter what you're struggling with on your own or doubting, if you are a believer in Jesus, then you are in Christ Jesus, and so you are secure as a child of the living God. So that was last week. And we begin like that now because for this week, that's our same topic as well. And, and to see that, look down at where our whole paragraph is going, as you heard in the scripture reading quickly at verse 7. Verse 7, the last verse of our paragraph is, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, so similar to last week, our paragraph this morning is about being children of God. But this week, we're going to have a slightly different emphasis than last week. Because if last week, if you remember, was us focusing on us being sons only because we're in Christ the Son. Now this week, we're going to talk more about what God himself did for you and I to get us there. To, to allow us to be his children. Or to say another way, if last week's passage was more about not relying on your own works to be a child of God, but instead, of, instead relying on Jesus... Now, this week is just more about what God did for you and I to bring us into his family. Right? How did God do that? How did that come about for us? That's what we'll be talking about this morning. And really quickly, just in case you're hearing all that and you just knee-jerk reaction, think it doesn't sound like it matters that much, just think for a second with me for why knowing how God brought us into his family really does matter. Because it does. And most simply, it matters because if how God brought us into his family is a little unstable or uncertain, then the being a child in his family itself would be unstable and uncertain. Right? And here's what I mean. So we're talking about us really being in God's family, you and I being God's child. And, and to see why how that came about is important, even just for a second, think about an example from a modern adoption. Because, for example, say my wife and I wanted to go and adopt a son, right? If the, if the how we adopted a son was by random, unheard of, or strange means, like if we found a child who happened to be without parents, and we didn't fill out any paperwork or anything, but we just invited that son to come back and live in our house, then sure, we could, we could claim that that kid is our child, but because of how we went about it, that kid's actual security in our family would be tentative at best, right? He wouldn't be securely in our family. And in reality, at any point, someone could come and challenge him being really actually in our family, all because of how we tried to adopt him. But on the other hand, if my wife and I wanted to adopt a son and, and we were careful to do it in the right legal way with all the processes and waiting involved, you know, dotting the I's and crossing the needed T's, then it's a different story. 
And importantly, it's a different story, not just because then my wife, can, my wife and I can say, well, we did it in the right way. Right? That's, that's less the point. Instead, it's a different story because by doing it in the right, proper, fitting way, now that child of ours would securely and truly be in our family, right? Without any fear that he could somehow lose being in our family. And so in a similar way, that's how it is for us and us being in God's family. Seeing how God brought you and I into his very family matters, Because seeing how God did it, especially how he did it in the right way at the right time, while doing exactly what you and I needed, both in world history and in our lives, seeing all that is what gives us security that we really are his children and that we're his children securely forever. Which all then brings us to an outline of how we'll go through our passage this morning here. So in our paragraph, we're going to have three main sections, three main sections. So our main theme is, really being children in God's family. But then concerning that this morning, first, we'll see what God took us out of to make us his children. And then second, we'll see how God acted in world history to secure us as his children. And then third and finally, we'll see how God acts in our histories, our personal stories to secure us as his children. So in sum, first, what God took us out of. Second, how God acted in world history. And third, how God acts in our histories, our stories. That's it. Let's then begin our first section together. And here we'll see again what God took us out of to make us his children. And for this, we're just going to be in verses 1 through 3 of Galatians 4. And here, like last week, just so you know, we're going to see Paul using another analogy in verses 1 and 2. And then he's going to explain the analogy a bit in verse 3. But we'll first begin by just reading the analogy itself. So remember, in context, in Galatians, Paul's been talking about the Old Testament law and then becoming sons and heirs in Christ. And it's in that discussion he says this. Look at your Bibles. Galatians 4, 1 and 2. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So the picture here is pretty basic. There's the heir, right? But the heir is still a child. And so Paul's point is, although on the one hand, the heir technically owns everything and he will get everything, still while he's a child, until he grows up, until the time set by his father, he technically doesn't in a way own anything. And that's because, again, he has to wait until Paul says the date set by his father. Until then, he's only under guardians and managers. And on this, in context, just so we all know, Paul most likely here is talking specifically about the Old Testament Israelites and the Jewish people. Because the point is, in one sense, the Old Testament Israelites, with the Old Testament promises and with being God's ethnic people, they were children and heirs. But then also, in another sense, in the whole Old Testament, they were waiting for God's timing to get their inheritance, right, with the coming of the Messiah. And so, to be honest, in that sense, verses 1 and 2 don't apply that much to all of us here this morning, except knowing that's what God did in the Old Testament, and, of course, knowing that the Messiah has come in Jesus. But then, Paul takes all of this to a more general level in verse 3, where he explains the analogy. And as we're going to see, what he says now in verse 3 coming up does apply to all of us. And now, with that said, let's all look down at what he says in verse 3. 
In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So verses 1 and 2, Paul was primarily using an example of the Jews in the Old Testament. But now notice in verse 3, Paul uses that we when talking about being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this shows us that now he's talking to all Christians, which includes Jews and non-Jews, and which includes us. And in a way, that then, that phrase there, describes us before our adoption. It's verse 3 that explains what God took us out of when he made us children. The Bible says we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, but what in the world does that mean, right? We might wonder. And, and this matters because, remember, this isn't just describing them. This is describing you and me before we knew Christ. And, and for some of you here, if you're honest with yourself and you don't know Jesus right now, the Bible here is lovingly but honestly describing you like this, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And, and so again, what does that mean? Well, that phrase there in verse 3 was used back then, we know, to refer to a couple main things, two main things. First, it referred to literally the basic rudimentary elements of the physical world, which back then they thought of as primarily earth, air, fire, and water. Those were the elementary principles of the world. Or second, this phrase was referred to back then to talk about the elementary principles in knowledge, meaning basic things like basic math, or letters that make up words, or basic words. Those are also known as the elementary principles of the world. Or finally, in third, perhaps third, this could refer to the basic fundamental spirits in the spiritual realm, which is why if you have the NIV, you'll see they translate it as elemental spiritual forces. But, but the only problem with that view, as I was studying it this week, is that we don't have any writings in ancient history that use this term like that, referring to spiritual forces, until about the 200s AD, so about a couple hundred years after Galatians was written. And so probably Paul isn't referring to spiritual forces in this context. But all that said then, that's what this term, the elementary principle principles of the world, really is all about. To sum it up, it's just talking about what we might call the basic stuff, right, that makes up our world. Because that's what it means when it's talking about basic physical stuff like earth, air, fire, and water. And that's what it means when it's talking about basic math or letters or words. It's kind of just the basic foundational stuff that makes up our world. And so that's how the term is used back then. And yet really to understand what Paul most likely specifically means by here in Galatians, now, actually look just quickly in your Bibles at verses 9 through 11 coming up. Because here, a handful of verses later, Paul uses this term again, but he seems to explain it a bit more. So Galatians 4, 9 through 11, and now notice how Paul uses the term here. But now you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. So what are those elementary principles of the world there? Well, in verse 10, it seems that Paul kind of explains it a bit. Because he mentions being enslaved to those elementary principles in verse 9. And then right away in verse 10, he says, 
You observe days and months and seasons and years. And so in other words, what's the basic stuff that you and I were enslaved to, according to the Bible here, before we knew Christ? Well, apparently the Bible isn't saying that we were enslaved to earth, wind, fire, and water, nor to math or letters or basic words, nor is the Bible saying here that we were enslaved to spiritual forces, although there is a truth to that one. Instead, what's the basic thing we're all kind of enslaved to before we knew Christ? Well, we're enslaved to the basic ideas, the elementary principles that our lives kind of just consist in observing rules and just doing stuff. That's essentially what the elementary principles of the world seem to be for Paul. And we know this from other contexts, he uses it too. And now I know that sounds kind of so basic. That's how Paul explains the elementary principles. And that actually makes the most sense right in Galatians that we've been going through as a church talking about the gospel versus the law. But, but not only that, that actually makes the most sense out of a lot of our experiences too. Because think about it, what in life is so basic for essentially everyone apart from Christ? Well, it's the idea, the fundamental idea that what I do, what I observe defi- defines who I am. That what I do is what gives me my identity, my peace, my comfort, my purpose. That my life is determined by, defined by my actions, right? And that's true of people who don't believe in God or any religion. And it's true of every other single religion outside of Christianity. Because secularism and basically all religions, basically, most elementary, are do as good as you can. And that defines who you are. That defines your relationship with yourself and others. And, or, that defines your relationship with the gods or with God. As you hear that, that's the very basic, elementary principles that so many people and religions live by in our world. And so the Bible is saying we all, without understanding the gospel of Jesus and who he is and what he does for us, we all were there. Right? We all were just defining our lives in such a basic, elementary way like that. Or more specifically, the Bible here says that we were all enslaved to that. Because that's really the profoundly convicting and revealing point here. It's about being enslaved to those elementary principles. And and this really does make sense, because let's be honest, whether it's in secularism, where everyone's just trying to be a decent person, or make a buck, or be known and successful, or just live a comfortable life, or again, whether it's in other religions, where people are trying to be good enough to be okay with their God or gods, whatever the case, the truth is, if that's all it is to be human, if that's really our ultimate purpose, then not only is that unfulfilling, but it's enslaving because we're never enough. When am I successful enough? When have I finally become comfortable enough? When am I known enough? When have I done enough? When am I good enough to have peace or to be okay with the gods? It's enslaving, just observing and doing and finding your identity there. And so again, the point is, that's all of us naturally before we come to trust in Jesus and the gospel, before God adopts us into his family. He brings us into his family out of that 
that enslavement to those elementary principles of the world. And, and perhaps as you're sitting there and you're hearing that, you might be realizing that that's still you. And if that's the case, I hope you realize that we were all like that before we came to Christ. But especially, I hope you hear that God this morning can take you out of that into his very family. That then leads us to how God did it. So that was our first section, what God took us out of. But now for the rest of this morning, we're going to see specifically how, how God rescued us and adopted us. And here in our second section, we'll see how God acted in world history to secure us as his sons. And for this, we'll be in verses 4 and 5. And, and as you hear this, remember, in verses 1 and 2, the analogy was that someone could be an heir, but if they're only a child, they need to wait for the date, the time set by their father so they can come into their inheritance. And so the emphasis of those verses is on us, people like us, being slave to the basic stuff of the world, but waiting, waiting for the right time, which is what why Paul says what he says in verses 4 and 5. Look down at your Bibles. The Bible continues. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when the fullness of time had come, meaning when time had filled up, when it was the time, what did God do? Well, in history, he sent forth his son, Jesus. And Jesus was born of a woman, showing he's one of us. And he was born under the law, meaning he lived in obedience to the Old Testament law. And why? In order to redeem those under the law, also that we could be adopted as sons brought into God's family. In other words, very simply, these verses are saying that God sent Jesus in history at the right time for the right purpose, right? To be under the law and redeem people under the law also that we who can't obey the law can still be God's sons in Christ. Because remember, that's, that's the whole point the Bible is making in this broader context. It's about how you and I can be sons of God truly in Christ. Right? In a very brief church, these verses here then are a way of telling the gospel, right? the good news of Jesus. And that's why scholars even think that verses 4 and 5 here could have been part of an ancient Christian early creed. Because this is the gospel, this is the good news of Jesus, that on our own we are enslaved to kind of the basic ways and stuff of the world, but Jesus came. Right, we know this, but, but Jesus came and, and he not only was God, but he was a perfect man and he did what de- needed to be done in his life, death, and resurrection to redeem us. But not only that, notice how it ends. He also did what needed to be done so that united to him by faith, we can be God's very children forever. So again, that is the gospel. And we've been talking about that over and over and over in Galatians. So we actually won't spend as much time on that here this morning, although that's the greatest news in the world. Instead, what we're going to focus on for a bit this morning is what's quite unique here in these verses. And that's that first clause that Paul writes in the beginning of verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, Because what's so unique about that, he doesn't write that a lot, but what's also unique about this phrase is, on the one hand, in this context, it is talking about Israel in the Old Testament, and the fullness of time then does include how God was building up to this with the whole Old Testament of the people of Israel. 
But that said, even more so, that phrase there in itself, fullness of time, is just a generic phrase that means when time had filled up. And in a way then, this phrase here is really talking about world time and world history. Paul is saying that when world time and world history was climaxed, then God sent his son. That God was always leading the timeline of history there to to the coming of Jesus and to the gospel and that everything since then has been looking back on that climactic moment. And for us, what's, what's so great about this is that for all of us, whether you're Christian or you're not a Christian, all of us are reminded of how true Galatians 4, 4 is every single day. Because just think about the world's calendar with our B.C. and A.D. dating system that God has just providentially put in place. Because right? as we all know, B.C. stands for before Christ, while A.D. stands for Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord. And yes, it's true that people now are trying to use B.C.E. and C.E. before Common Era and Common Era, which is understandable, since most people in the world are not Christians, and so that's fine. And yet, still... Even if they do that, the BCE and CE eras are still defined by the coming of Jesus Christ. And so again, this means that literally our whole dating system is based on what this verse is saying. That everything before Christ was leading up to Christ and that everything since Christ has been looking back on Christ. Every day God is pointing the world to the fact that the fullness of time was when Jesus Christ came. And concerning this fullness of time idea, it wasn't just Paul that taught this. In fact, Jesus himself alluded to this reality. Or or maybe to say it better, Jesus himself knew that as he was arriving on the scene 2,000 years ago, it wasn't just that he happened to come at a time, but he knew that he came, that the Father sent him at the fullness of time. And to see, Jesus say that, see, to see Jesus say this for yourself, if you want, turn with me. You don't have to. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. should be about 100 pages or so to the left in your Bible. Mark chapter 1. Again, you don't have to turn there if you don't want. I'll be reading a couple verses from there. But this is something I saw this week from Jesus, and I want you to see it yourself. So Mark chapter 1. And as you may know, Mark is one of the Gospels meaning it's one of the historical accounts that talks about the life, teachings, miracles, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And Mark chapter 1 is the first chapter of this gospel. And so if you're there, notice with me now how the beginning of this whole gospel starts. So in verse 1 of Mark's account, if you're looking there, you don't have to be there, but Mark talks about how the gospel, how his book here is about the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So you see that. And then after that, Mark includes this longer quote from the Old Testament predicting the coming of Jesus. And then after that, Mark includes this section on John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus, right? And then after that, you can see Mark includes this section on the baptism of Jesus, where God the Father speaks and approves of Jesus. And then finally, after that, Mark includes the section on the temptation, and then he includes the section where the Spirit is taking Jesus out to the wilderness. And so now the Spirit is preparing the way for Jesus. And so all that said, so far, all of this stuff is foretelling, predicting, preparing the way for Jesus. It's setting up the stage. 
which then leads to verses 14 and 15 of Mark 1. And here, finally, Jesus begins his ministry and he speaks for the first time in this gospel. And notice the first words out of his mouth. This is Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus' first words in this historical account are, quote, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, Jesus himself knew that this was finally it. Time had been filled up. The Old Testament, the prophets, world history, God himself, the Father, the Spirit was all leading to this. It was all leading to this good news where people can turn to him as king, come into his kingdom, all by turning and believing. That came in Jesus in the fullness of time. But I'll go ahead and turn with me back to Galatians 4, if you and Mark, go ahead and turn back to Galatians 4. So all that said, that then, in a way, is our answer to our second section here of what God did in world history to secure us as sons. Right? God the Father decided to send Jesus, and Jesus came at the right time in history, and he did what needed to be done to redeem us and to adopt us as God's children. And bring us back to what we talked about to open this morning. Why all that matters isn't just because, okay, now I know that. Rather, it's because, think about it, if what we're talking about here is the case, if this is what God is doing in world history and what he's done with the, with the leading up of everything to the central thing being the gospel of Jesus, and if all we kind of are is just part of that, then we can feel more secure in our sonship. Because this means that me being a son of God isn't just a me and God thing. It is, but it's much bigger than that. Rather, this has always been God's purpose for world history. Right? The plan always was that he'd send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Also that, as the ending of verse 5 says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so the point is, for us, if you trust in Christ and you are in Christ, we can stop looking at ourselves so much. Right? Instead, we can look at world history with the timeline that the sovereign God has been orchestrating every step of the way, past, present, future, B.C., A.D., and we can say, man, me being God's child really isn't dependent on me. Right? It's, it's not about how good I am. Instead, it's about what God has been doing in world history in the climactic good news of Jesus Christ, and I'm just swept up into that. And so for us, that's where we can have more security and that you really are a child of God. Again, it isn't about you and me or about how good we are. I mean, how silly it is kind of to think that. I mean, we're talking about God's purpose for world history. In comparison to that, how small are the tiny little good things that we try to do? Instead, us being sons is about God's eternal purpose and plan to graciously take his people from being sinners and slaves to saved and sons in Christ. 
And so again, if you are in Christ, you are a child of God because you just swept up into that in Christ. Which finally leads us to our third and last section. And here now we're going to see how God acts in our histories, our stories, to secure us as his sons. And for this, we're just going to be in verse 6. And concerning we're about to read, I love how Paul wrote this paragraph here. Because remember, as we just saw in verses 4 and 5, essentially that was about the objective good news of what Jesus did in history for sinners like us. And many theologians, just so you know, will call that topic more salvation accomplished. Because the idea is objectively, outside of us, in history, before you and I were even born, God accomplished what needed to be done to save and adopt us. But the question that is, but what about me personally in the here and now? How does that become something that's personal and true for me? And this is the topic that theologians have often called salvation applied, right? Because it's taking the outside of us reality of what Jesus did in history and it's making it personal for individual people like you and me in our stories. And so far in Galatians, we know that that happens by faith, right? As we trust in Jesus. But in addition to that, Paul talks about something else now in verse 6. And this is a beautiful verse. So look down at your Bibles, Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because we're sons, we have God's spirit. But not just that, notice, Paul said in verse 4 that God sent Jesus, and now that same phrase is actually used here in verse 6 with God sending the spirit. Meaning, God himself, the Trinity, is involved in this. God himself sent and came in Jesus in history, and God himself sends and comes by his Spirit to apply this personally to you and my hearts. And as a quick side note, notice it's also the Spirit of the Son here. And so really, within our very hearts, the Trinity is at work. The Father, he sends the Spirit, and it is the Spirit of Jesus. But that said, let's not break down what the Spirit does in us here. Because this is not only interesting, but, but this really helps you and I know practically, experientially, what it's like to be a child of God. And it helps us know we can feel more secure in God's family. So famously here, the Spirit of the Son comes into our hearts, and what's our response? We cry, Abba, Father. And those two words there basically both mean father. The second word is the Greek word for father, pater. And the first word is the Aramaic word for father, Abba. Except technically, Abba is a more emphatic and intimate way of saying father. And that's why, as perhaps you might have heard, some people say that this is equivalent to our English word daddy. And that's because a Bible scholar in the 1950s really made that famous. And in a way, that is really helpful. Because again, this is a very emphatic and intimate term. And yet, honestly, on the other hand, if to you the the term daddy sounds maybe too infantile or something, then, then don't maybe worry about it. Instead, either way, more important is the fact that Abba is an emphatically intimate way of saying father. 
And it shows us that as a child of God, God being your father isn't just saying he's the one who made you or just the one who watches you or disciplines you or guides you or even saves you and redeems you. Instead, you and I being able to call God the Aramaic word Abba is showing us that God is truly our intimate, close to me, Father. And on this, perhaps the best example of what this really looks like is in how Jesus himself, the Son of God, used this term Abba. Because this term Abba only, occur, only occurs three whole times in the whole new, three times in the whole New Testament, twice by Paul, once here, Romans 8, but then also it's used one time by Jesus in the Gospels. And seeing how Jesus uses this, I think, really helps us understand it. And so hear this from Mark 14. You don't have to turn there. And I won't say the context because you'll probably know it right away. But notice this is the first, the only time in Scripture that Abba is recorded on Jesus' lips. Now, now, as a quick side note, remember, Jesus himself probably spoke Aramaic. And so he probably called God Abba all the time. But this is the only time in God's providence that Abba in Scripture is on Jesus' lips. This is Mark 14, 36. Jesus is praying, and the Bible records this. And he, Jesus, said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will will, but as you will. And so as you probably know, this is Jesus right before his crucifixion praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, he's in intense suffering, intense agony, intense struggle in prayer, but also what that term Abba used in that setting shows us is that at that moment, Jesus also is in intense intimacy with his Father. Right, and, the, and, this, and this shows us really what the term Abba probably is meant to be all about, both for Jesus and for you and me. Right? It's an emphatically intimate term. And so you can use the word daddy if that helps. But perhaps above all, we should realize that Abba is a great term of intimacy, even and especially in perhaps suffering. And in fact, that's probably partly wise. You can see in Galatians 4, 6 here. And this is true in, when Paul says it in Romans 8. It's why the Bible says that by the Spirit, we don't just say Abba, but the Spirit leads us to cry, Abba. Because often in this fallen world, that's particularly what it looks like to be a child of God. It's not just knowing that we're loved by God and cared for and close to Him. That's true. But it's especially knowing and feeling that He's our close Father even in the midst of such suffering and confusion and pain. He loves us that much as his children, even and especially in the hard times in all of our circumstances. And so concerning this final section here, that's essentially what God does in our histories to really secure us as his sons. He, he sent his son in, in world history to redeem us and make us sons. But then personally in our stories, as soon as we trust in Jesus, he comes to us by his spirit. And his spirit works in us in such a way where we become people who genuinely know that God is our father, yes, but even more than that, the Spirit makes us people who deeply, intimately, even in our suffering, know and experience God is our Abba, Father. <laughs> or to say it another way, in a similar way, as we just heard, that Jesus earnestly cried out 
to his intimate father in that garden of Gethsemane, so the spirit, Jesus' spirit, as the Bible says, works in our very hearts to make us realize and love and cry out to the same Abba Father. And it's all because, the point is, just like Jesus is the Son of God, we in Christ truly are God's children as well. And so that's most of our passage, church. We were enslaved on our own to the basic stuff and principles of the world. But what did God do to adopt us? How did he do it? Well, first, in world history, he sent his son to redeem us and adopt us. But that's not it. Not only did God act in world history, but then to secure his people as his children, he acts in our histories. He personally comes to each of his people by his spirit, and by the spirit we know our God and cry out to him as Abba, Father. Well, Jesus, now to briefly close with verse 7. And so we save this for last because in many ways this is a fitting summary of a lot of what we've seen. So look down your Bibles one final time, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So briefly to close, notice just three things from that verse that summarizes and even builds on what we've been talking about. First, we are no longer slaves. And church, that's really good news. Because this means that we can take heart that we're no longer people who are chained to thinking that my life is mainly defined by what I do. Right? We're no longer enslaved to that insecure, uncertain way of thinking about who we are as individuals. Instead, second, if you're in Christ, you're no longer a slave, but a son. Really, a son of God, a child of God, known, loved, cared for, which leads to third, the third thing there in verse seven. If you're a son, and we are also heirs. Right, we haven't talked a lot about that this morning, but we spent a while on it last week. But in brief, this means that not only do we get freedom from our slavery, and not only are we now secure as God's children forever, but also, let's remember, as God's sons, we also inherit God's promises and eventually inherit the world. That's us now, and that's our future. And so that, brothers and sisters, is our passage. And again, as we, hope and, uh, as we opened, I, I do pray that above all, what this passage has done is help you and I feel secure as God's children. Because let's be honest, it, 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 we can say that. We can say, it's easy to say the words, I am a child of God, but isn't it tough sometimes to really believe it? Right? It's difficult to really believe that this is all real and that you and I are personally known and loved and cared for and secure in God's family. But that's why passages like this are so helpful because one last time, remember, God has orchestrated all of world history so that he could come and take people from being slaves to being sons in Christ. And not only that, but God himself, Jesus' spirit, then comes to us personally to give us precious intimacy with our Abba Father as God's children. And, And so for us, As we leave here this morning, brothers and sisters, let's be people who really believe this. Let's be people who keep trusting Jesus and what he did for us in the gospel. And then finally, let's be people who daily, by Jesus' spirit, no matter what we're going through, enjoy the love and care of our Abba Father. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.